Um, as we transition into uh, our sermon this morning, I'd invite you to be praying with me um, that God would use this time powerfully in our hearts and minds as we open up his word together, that his spirit would do the work that only his spirit can do. So would you pray with me? Father, we turn our face to you this morning looking for you to fill us. Lord, you are a fountain of living water. And we come thirsty and you beckon us to drink. And so, Lord, would you fill our souls this morning? Lord, you say that your word is bread for our souls. And we come hungry. And we pray, Lord, that you would do the miracle to feed us. That we would be sustained and grow stronger. That be nourished. So that we might be sent out to do all that you have called us to do. Father, I pray that your spirit would bring clarity to the words. I pray that it would bring illumination, not just to our head, but to our heart. And I pray, Lord, that your spirit would do the work to transform us more and more into the image of God from one degree of glory to another. Lord, we believe the scriptures when they say that at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. I pray that you would satisfy us this morning in a way that would bring us great joy. I ask you to do that in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, this morning's message is what I'm calling a hinge message. And what I mean by hinge, hinge message is Pastor Keith has just finished uh, really a three-part series on evangelism that he called Speak. And he wrapped that up last week. I'm and Pastor, um, Pastor Kyle and I will be starting a new series over the next eight weeks and so today we're kind of standing at the door and I want this morning's message to open the door for us to enter into what's coming next. It also makes sense. It's a new year. It's the first Sunday in January. In some ways, there's a new fresh start to it. And I want to connect in some ways what uh, Pastor Keith did for us with Speak. In that series, he did uh, a lot of work to prepare us to do the work of the evangelist that God has called every man and woman to be a vocal ambassador for his kingdom to everyone on earth. In fact, he used a word last week that I uh, know exactly seven days, uh, the word conscript, that God has drafted you into his kingdom as a soldier to be a communicator, which is why to be faithful to that, we must speak. That was the point of it. This morning, we're going to look at, in some ways, at the same coin just on the other side. Because God just doesn't call us to speak as ambassadors, but to live as them. And so I want us to turn, uh, you can turn to 1 Peter chapter 2, which is where we'll be this morning. My big idea for us is that this that the good news of the gospel, or I'm sorry, the good news of God's kingdom is both heard, this is the speak piece, heard by proclamations and seen through demonstrations of the gospel. And I hope that as you read 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 12, you might see how this serves as a great hinge for us to open up into talking about what we'll talk about for the next seven weeks. And so, uh, my outline for this morning is fairly simple. It'll follow um, who you are. In fact, if you have the outline, uh, you can follow along. Who you are, what you do, 
why you do it. Who you are, identity language, what you do, action, behavior, why you do it, getting down to our mission and purpose. And right now, I'm going to be speaking primarily to Christians, and so I might use the words you or your in this time. And if you're not a believer and you're here this morning, we're glad you're here. In some ways, you'll get a behind-the-scenes picture into trying to understand what is it that Christians are doing? Who are they? What do they do? Why do they do the things that they do? Or why ought they to do the things that they ought to do? And so if, if at any time in this message you hear me say you're... I'm only talking to believers in this message, but I'm glad that you might be listening in to figure out, well, what is, what does it mean to be a believer? Let's read 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 12 together. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So let's start with who are you? In fact, you might already be picking up on some points. My first section in answering the question, who are believers, who are Christians, is to say that Christians are citizens or you are citizens of God's kingdom. Peter is going to point out some key words for us that help us to understand our own identity. And he does that in verse nine, but you are. And so as you are, this is an identity language. And then he gives some descriptions of it. You are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are a people, you are God's people. And what I gather from that is that there is, in some ways, a new kingdom that God is helping us to see. There is a kingdom of this world, but now you are a part of a different kingdom. You are citizens of God's new kingdom. And God's kingdom is full of people who are chosen by him, who are royal, who are holy, I understand this is a familiar text. In fact, I think Pastor Keith probably referenced it in his speak sermon. And what I find sometimes is that when you hear a verse over and over again, it might lose some of its luster. In fact, when you read who you are, it might seem dull. And so I'm trying to help us to see maybe this text with a new set of eyes. And so maybe it would help if you looked at maybe what the opposite would be. Instead of chosen, what if you were an ignored people or an inferior people? What instead of being royal, you were a common person? What if instead of being holy, you were a degenerate person? Might it be good news if you were transferred from that into being a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God? I hope so. I hope that the Spirit is letting you know that this is good news of great joy for all people, to use some Christmas language. 
that our identity as citizens is good news. And that might be difficult maybe just because we live in 21st century America where, man, you can do anything and be anyone. Americans pride themselves on the ability for us to come from nothing, pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and become a millionaire in our own, become a a self-made man. You didn't need daddy's money. You didn't need daddy's name. You just needed to work hard enough. And if you did, well, you got to become somebody that you weren't before. And some of you might be those people who through business savvy and maybe some luck were able to get to a point where you used to be common and you used to be an outsider. But now you've in some ways achieved success in this world. And so I think maybe it might be difficult for you to see how it would be good news of great joy to become a citizen of God's country. I recognize it that it's not true of everyone around the world or of any time except for maybe now in the last 50 years. There are a lot of people today who would find becoming a citizen of the United States to be good news of great joy. If they got a letter in the mail letting them know that they were given a visa to come even just work here for a season, that would be good news of great joy for a lot of people. Despite all of America's flaws, living in a great country comes with terrific benefits. In fact, if you read Ephesians 1 um, and really chapter 2, you would hear the Apostle Paul gush over all of the good news of great joy that comes from becoming a citizen of God's country. In fact, go home, and it's one of the questions in the uh, back of your notes. Go home and read Ephesians 1. It's really like one giant run-on sentence. It's like a kid after Christmas just listing off everything that he got for Christmas. And I got this, and I got this, and I got this. Paul is saying, in Christ, we are rich with blessings because we are beneficiaries of God's kingdom. But with those rights also comes responsibilities. I don't think that I grasped this aspect of what it means to be a citizen um, until I watched a television show called Downton Abbey. Um, I'm not sure if you've seen Downton Abbey, but it's a show. uh, I don't know what channel it takes place on, uh, Hulu or Netflix or something. It's old. It's older anyway. And it follows this family, the Crawley family, in uh, early 20th century England. The Crawleys are a wealthy, high-class, aristocratic family. And in some ways, they showcase what it would be like to live as nobility, to live as someone who is a citizen of a high country, not just a citizen, but really nobility. And in that, you can contrast their lifestyle as a citizen, as a Crawley, versus what it might be to no longer be a citizen of the Crawley family, but to be an outsider. You can look at the way that the servants in the house are treated. You can look at the way that the commoners in the village are treated. And you kind of get a dichotomy of, it sure would have been nice to live as a Crawley in early 20th century England. There were certain rights and privileges that go along with that. But there are also some responsibilities as well. When you become a citizen you have certain rights and responsibilities. And one of my favorite characters in Downton Abbey is a man named Tom Branson. Tom starts off the show as a servant in the Crawley home. He's one of their chauffeurs, drivers for them. 
And then he marries a girl by the name of Lady Sybil, who is one of the Crawley family daughters. And when he marries her, he enters into a new kingdom. He now becomes one of the Crawleys. And you might think that that's all good news for him. But he quickly finds out, and his story arc is primarily about the fact that he is torn. He remembers what it was like to live as a servant. And now as a Crawley, he's got to dress differently. He's got to speak differently. He spends his time differently and he works differently. Being a citizen of a noble class is good news, but it comes with responsibilities. The same is true when you become a citizen of the United States. There are responsibilities that come along with it. I think I have the oath of, do I have the oath? I must not. Can you go back to that? I'll read it here for you. When you become a citizen of the United States, you take an oath of office or an oath of allegiance, and the oath goes a lot like this. Uh, I'll come back to it. I promise I have it somewhere in my notes. Regardless, when you end up taking on a citizenship, there are benefits to come with it. There are responsibilities. To get back to our identity as who we are, I want to pull on some other language that Peter uses to describe our identity. And he does it in verse 11 when he says that you are now sojourners and exiles. And I use that language of ambassador. You're now ambassadors of God's kingdom. Because citizens typically live in the country where they are citizens. And Peter points out to us, but you are sojourners and exiles. We are citizens, but we don't live in our country of home. We don't reside in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven with God. But we live here on earth as sojourners and exiles. We are ambassadors then. We are representatives. And this is one of Keith's big points in the Speak series is that God has not left you to be a citizen alone, but he has tasked you with another title as an ambassador, as his representative to the people and to the places that he sent you. Citizenship is different from being an ambassador because I think both of them end up having rights and responsibilities. But what I draw out about the truth that we are living as exiles is that God has a specific plan for you as sojourners and exiles. He could have easily, when he saved you, plucked you out of the earth and seated you in the heavens with God to reside with him as citizens. But that's not his plan for you. He has allowed you to stay where you're at. In fact, I'll be a little bit more specific so you can read it. God has specifically appointed you to represent him and his kingdom to a designated place and to a designated people. Who are the people 
that God has called you to be an ambassador to? Where are the places that God has commissioned you as his conscript to be an ambassador for him? I'm not sure if you look at your life and think, I'm so dissatisfied with where I'm at. Maybe I I thought I was going to be so further along by now. And I want to say, no. No, God has specifically appointed and designated a people for you to be among. And so it's not an accident that you're still in that job that you're in. It's not an accident that you live next to the neighbors. Those neighbor kids are God's divine encounters for you to represent him and his kingdom to those kids. Those people that are in your care group, then in some ways you wish that you were in a different care group or didn't at least have to spend time with those people. God has called you to those people. Those are divine opportunities for you to represent him and his kingdom. And so I would love for you to consider where might God be calling you? And that just is probably looking maybe down your street where you live. You have neighbors. A lot of you do anyway. If you don't have neighbors, you have coworkers. And if you don't have coworkers, you've got people that you play with. If you're a student, you've got teammates. And if you're a parent of a teen who's an athlete, you've got other parents whose teens are athletes. These are not accidents. God has designed you and designated you to reach those people as his ambassadors. Now, what are we to do with that mission? So let's move on to what are we to do? You can probably pick out all of the verbs in 1 Peter 2, 9 through 12. What are we to do? First is to proclaim. And you can see maybe the door starting to swing open because that's all reminder of what Pastor Keith did. We are to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Proclaim with words. But the second part is equally as important in Peter's mind. Because after he says to proclaim, he says, you are to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul, and to live honorable lives among the Gentiles. The two parts to that. There are words that we speak. And Pastor Keith made it clear, this is our responsibility as ambassadors. What Peter is helping us to see is that we don't just speak words, but we do works. Christians have a mission in some ways, an action. As believers, we live a certain way. What is that? Well, as Christians, we abstain from passions of the flesh and we live good lives among the Gentiles. And what I want to point out about that is this flow of who we are and what we do is important. Because I know that there are some, maybe even outside the faith, who would think, Brendan, you mixed up the order. You were supposed to, you were supposed to do the what you do and then who you are. Because a lot of us maybe have grown up thinking in some ways that if I do certain things, God will accept me as a certain type of person. It's a view that outsiders of the church might have, 
that Christians are good people who do good things and then God loves them. And Peter points out that the order is identity precedes action. All of these actions flow from our new identity rather than becoming the reason for our identity. I'll try to illustrate that. The same is true for you probably if you've ever gotten married. Prior to July 26, 2020, I lived in a different kingdom. Let's call it the kingdom of bachelorhood. It's a marvelous kingdom. You walk into your home, you don't take your shoes off in the kingdom of bachelorhood. Kingdom of bachelors, I was the lord of the manor at 427 and decreed that we shall have a dartboard in the kitchen. And we played darts in the kitchen. There were certain rights and responsibilities um, that came along with bachelorhood, but they were very limited. It was a lot of rights and privileges. These things are not so anymore. I live in a new kingdom, the kingdom of matrimony. And there is a lord of the manor who I share reign with. And so I live in a take-your-shoes-off house now. And I watch shows like Downton Abbey. (laughs) But I can tell you, it is a better kingdom. It's a very clean kingdom. It's a kingdom that smells like Christmas trees and sugar cookies all year long. But I can tell you that taking, a sh- taking my shoes off in another person's home does not make me married to anybody. Taking a dartboard out and living as one without a dartboard does not make me a married man. Marriage has changed me, but I did not change in order to become married. In other words, I did not have to change in order for Bethany to love me. Bethany loved me and now that love has changed me and so I willingly do these things. I didn't have to do them in order to earn her love and appreciation. She chose me before I was somebody else. And so if you've experienced some of that change, it's okay that you change when you get married. In some ways, that's the natural progression. You become first. And that transforms how you live. And Peter is saying this, you are a chosen race, a royal priest, sort of holy nation, people belonging to God to proclaim his excellencies. And then as those people, as citizens and ambassadors, you now abstain from the passions of flesh. You now do good deeds. You don't do those things in order to become. You do those things because that's who you are. That's a big good news of the gospel facet that you do not have to earn your way into God's kingdom. However, you are not free as it is. And what I mean by that is there was a time when you were ruled by the desires of the flesh. You were in some ways a citizen of another kingdom when you become a citizen of a new kingdom, you choose to renounce an old kingdom. So when you become like a citizen of the United States, I knew it was there. I hereby declare an oath that I absolutely and entirely renounce and abjure 
all allegiance and fidelity to any foreign prince, potentate, state, or sovereignty of whom or which I have heretofore been a subject or citizen, that I will support and defend the Constitution and laws of the United States of America against all enemies, foreign and domestic. The biblical language for what's happening here is the concept of repentance. We renounce and reject our former way of life and fully embrace and now reflect a new kingdom value system. Repentance is the idea that I'm not going to live in that kingdom anymore. I'm not going to go back to my former way of life. I'm going to live as a new citizen. In fact, frankly, there are times when I, as a citizen of uh, the kingdom of matrimony, wish that I could go back to that kingdom of bachelorhood. In fact, I find myself in some ways acting like a bachelor at times. And what I need to do in those moments is remember, I don't live there anymore. That's not who I am anymore. When I got married, I gave in some ways an oath of allegiance to Bethany. And I rejected my past, rejected all of the rights and privileges that came from bachelorhood. And I said, I'm going to now be a part of this new kingdom as a citizen of marriage. Christianity is very similar. When you hear the good news and call upon the name of the Lord and he saves you, you are transformed into a new citizen and your job is to renounce and reject your former kingdom. I think Paul probably gets at what's happening in this renouncement by helping us to remember where we were. Ephesians 2 verses one through three. He's describing who we were before we became citizens. And hearing these words of where you were might help you to see why the gospel is good news of great joy. Because you were once dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once walked, once lived in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Paul's describing the before picture of what it was like to live in that former kingdom. We lived as those who followed the passions of the flesh. And if you had to guess what the, the next verse was in Ephesians uh, two, what four would start off with. But now, but God, but something's different now. But God, being rich in mercy, has done some work to move you from the former kingdom into a new kingdom. But what does Peter still mean by passions of the flesh? Paul does a little bit more work in Galatians 5 to help us see what Peter is talking about when he talks about the desires of the flesh. Galatians 5, 17. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. And the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other. To keep you from doing the things you want to do. Then he gets a little bit more specific. 
Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. The list goes on. Paul in Galatians says, I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Peter's doing the same thing here in 1 Peter 2, verse 11. He's warning us. He says, beloved, I warn you, I urge you, because you are living not in your home, but as ambassadors on earth, because you are living in some ways as resident aliens, you will be tempted to return back to that kingdom there are impulses still within you that will desire to go back and live in a kingdom and you don't live there anymore. That's not who you are anymore. And so abstain from these passions of the flesh. Abstain from these certain sins that were once a part of your past but are now not supposed to be a part of your future. So sober warning. And that might be confusing for you because in some ways we just, and we will, sing songs that talk about God's kingdom reign. That God is our king. He has defeated our enemies of Satan, sin, and death. And as Christians, we believe that wholeheartedly. We believe that Jesus has dealt the final death blow to all of our greatest enemies. We believe that he will come again and totally eradicate this world of sin. But I've said in a sermon before that no, that Sin, sin no longer reigns, but it remains. That there are still sinful influences, sinful impulses that will tempt us to go back and live in another kingdom. What we sometimes call is that God's kingdom is already here and not yet here. Jesus has inaugurated his kingdom by coming and setting up his throne but this kingdom has not been fully consummated yet. Not everything in this world completely reflects God's values, his kingdom glory. And until then, we live in this in-between where even believers are still tempted to live as citizens of the world rather than citizens of God's kingdom. And that's why Peter urges us to make war on the passions of the flesh, which have the power to destroy our souls. That's why he declares us to live good lives. Well, we're getting into the why, so let's move into that. Why? Why ought we to abstain? Why ought we to proclaim? The first answer is maybe the Sunday school answer, to glorify your God. God has made us citizens and ambassadors to proclaim and abstain so that he would be glorified. In some ways, this is the end for which all things were created. This is the reason that you are in existence, that you might enjoy God and glorify him forever. And so in whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. When we speak words, our words should be spoken in such a way so that God's supremacy would be heard. And as we live good lives among the Gentiles, 
these good deeds should reveal a bit of our new citizenship, our new decorum that would reflect God's kingdom rather than the world's kingdom. This is a theme that will come back throughout this series, but one of the reasons that we abstain is in order to glorify God. The second reason that we live as citizens and ambassadors to proclaim and abstain is to verify our witness. Faithful gospel representation requires both words and works, both proclamation and demonstration. You need to be both to serve as a faithful ambassador. If you are faithful in speaking, but unfaithful in living, you're like a bad fitness trainer. I don't know if you're trying to lose some LBs in 2021 and you're looking for a new fitness trainer to help you get in shape. Technically, it doesn't matter whether your fitness trainer that you select is morbidly obese or not. If he has truth about diet and exercise, I mean, truth is truth. It doesn't matter. But if you're looking to get fit, I'm guessing you're looking for someone that you want to look like. And even if there's part of you that thinks, how that might be true, the veracity of the message is sort of clouded by a fat fitness trainer who might speak good news, but it's clear he doesn't live it. If all we do is speak words of truth and we don't live words of truth, we're not representing the kingdom of God as God designed us to be. If you are faithful in proclaiming, but not faithful in demonstrating, we are failing in our responsibilities as ambassadors. And the same is true likewise. If, if all you're doing is living good lives, but not opening your mouth, you're like a bad advertisement because others might see your good deeds and unless you tell them where these good deeds are coming from, they might not glorify God, but glorify you. If we kept reading in Peter chapter 3, verse 15, we hear Peter say, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being ready to give an answer to anyone who asks you for a reason that the hope that you have. Not everyone gets an invitation to be asked about the reason for the hope that we have unless we're living in a way that would stand in stark contrast to the rest of the world, unless it's clear that our new kingdom values are different from the values of this world, no one's going to ask us for the reason that the hope we have. They are just going to assume that we have the same hope they do. We have the same desires they do. We do the same kinds of things. We work and live and speak we post on social media. We TikTok the same. We do all of the things that the world does in the same way that the world does that. Why would anyone ask us for the reason we hope that we have? They, they just assume, oh, they're just like me. In order for us to verify our witness, we must be faithful in speaking 
and faithful in doing. And here's where the, the message fully hinges open to the final section. Why do we live as citizens and ambassadors to abstain and proclaim, to glorify God? Yes. To verify our witness? Yes. But thirdly, to satisfy our souls. And this is going to be the point that will kick us into the remaining seven messages. But I will say, it might be tough for you to, to grasp. And so can I just pray um, that, that this last section would be helpful for us? So, Father, we turn our face to you, asking for you to open our eyes in a kind of wide, clear, vivid way that we might see what's happening as good news of great joy. That it would be a part of helping us to move into the world to abstain and proclaim. So help us here. In Jesus' name, amen. Peter does something very strange in verse 10. You can look at verse 10. It says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. What Peter's doing, he's making, he's alluding to an Old Testament story that you're probably familiar with, but you might not necessarily know the connection. A lot of us maybe know the story of Hosea and Gomer. And if you don't, um, you can turn in your Bible, even maybe right now, uh, just read the first few verses of uh, Hosea chapter one. Uh, I'm not going to read them. Uh, parents, I would encourage you, if you want a way to tell the story of Hosea and Gomer, there's a video on YouTube uh, that is the story of Hosea for kids. As is, a, in the case, a lot of the prophets, their stories are not necessarily PG-rated. I'll try to tell the story in a way so that you can grasp what's going on. God comes to a man named Hosea, and he gives Hosea the kind of commandment that if I followed, I would get fired. He says, Hosea, I want you to go and I want you to marry an unfaithful woman. The kind of woman who is going to leave you for a different man and then a different man and then a different man. Hosea, I want you to marry a girl like that. And so Hosea does. And they have three kids together, Hosea and Gomer. They have three kids, Jezreel. The other two are difficult to pronounce. Lo-ru-hema, lo lo-ru-hema, and lo-am-i. Jezreel, lo-ru-hema, lo-am-i. And they have three kids, and Hosea leaves, leaves dad as a single dad. And then God comes to Hosea, and he says, Hosea, I want you to continue to love that unfaithful woman. In fact, I want you to go and I want you to buy her back. I want you to pay the price to bring her back into your family. And, and God is doing this in a lot of ways to demonstrate what he believes his people are doing to him. God is comparing our relationship with him to be one of marriage. And he says, my people are like Gomer. They're unfaithful. They go and run off with other Men, they seek satisfaction not from me, but from other men. Jeremiah uh, 2 uh, phrases it like this. Has any nation ever traded its gods for new ones, even though they are not gods at all? 
Yet my people have exchanged their glorious gods for worthless idols. The heavens are shocked at such a thing and shrink back in horror and dismay, says the Lord. For my people have done two evil things. They have abandoned me, the fountain of living waters, and they have dug for themselves cracked cisterns that can hold no water. If you look at how Jeremiah is describing the scene, it's very similar. God is declaring what evil is. It is evil to turn away from God and seek satisfaction in another source. It's why it was so evil for Gomer to leave Hosea. Hosea was a faithful, loving husband. She had kids of her own. It was evil for her to leave her husband and kids to find satisfaction in another man. But the story goes on because Hosea does listen to God's word and he demonstrates in some ways God's love for Hosea and their kids. Hosea pays the price to bring, to bring Gomer back into his family. Peter picks up on that when he's quoting 1 Peter, 1 Peter 1.18. For you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life that you inherited from your ancestors. It was not paid with mere gold or silver, which lose their value. It was the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless lamb. Peter is drawing us on an Old Testament story to help us realize what's happening to us in Christ. And Hosea 2 ends with God declaring, affirming his steadfast love for Hosea, for Gomer, and for Jezreel, and lo Rehema, and lo Emi. And it might be helpful for you to know what lo Rehemai, or lo, lo, lo Emi, and lo, he, lo, he, lo Ruhema. What they trans, it's so much easier if I just let you know that their names translate to not my people and no mercy. God is declaring to lo Ruhema, you are now my people. And he's pronouncing to Lo am I, you are now one to have received mercy. You were born, not my people. You were born, not having mercy. And Peter's saying, in Christ, we are all like Hosea and Gomer and Jezreel and not my people and not receive mercy. Because once we were not a people, but now we have become a people. Once we had not received mercy, but now we have received mercy. And which is why Peter tells us there is still impulses inside you, just like there was Gomer, to find satisfaction in our old kingdom, to abandon our God, our fountain of living water, and to dig out cisterns, broken cisterns for herself, to turn and try to find satisfaction in the old kingdom rather than in the new. This series, in some ways, is to help us see that this Christian life is a fight for joy. It is a fight for us to reject the world by embracing the treasures that come from the good news of great joy that is afforded to us as citizens. The reason that Peter tells us to abstain from the passions of the flesh is because they wage war against our souls. There are desires 
that if we indulge them would destroy us. And he's saying, don't do that. You don't live there anymore. Fight against those desires. Fight against those temptations. But when you're actually fighting, you're fighting for a greater joy. C.S. Lewis has one of my favorite quotes. I'm not sure how many times I've quoted it from the platform here, but it's worth saying again. In his sermon on the weight of glory, he says, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drinks and sex and ambition and a whole host of fleshly desires. When infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in his old kingdom because he cannot imagine what is meant by the holiday in his new kingdom. We are far too easily pleased. Over the next seven weeks, Pastor Kyle and I will um, address what have been commonly called the seven deadly sins. This is not an exhaustive list, just as uh, Paul's list in Galatians was not exhaustive. There are other things like these. It's actually not even technically a a biblical list because this list of seven sins that we'll cover is never covered exactly uh, in the scriptures. They nonetheless represent what we would call root sins. Root desires or passions of the flesh, which God is calling us to battle. And so uh, over the next seven weeks, we will tackle in some ways greed, anger, lust, gluttony, sloth, envy, and pride in that order. And as I read that list, I'm wondering if there's a part of you that says, well, that's not me. I'm not greedy. Well, that's not me. I'm not angry. Well, that's not me. I'm not envious. Well, that's not me. I'm not. Beloved, I warn you, I urge you, as brothers and sisters in the faith, that there are remaining impulses in you that would cause you to be tempted to these passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. And though you might not see the fruit of sin in the same way everyone does, there may be fruits of sin in your life that can be traced back to these root sins. And for God's glory, for your witness, and for your joy, I want us to tackle these seven sins. To know our enemy, to know how to defeat him, to know how to wield the weapons God has given us to fight this battle for joy. So you pray with me. Father, we praise you first for having good news of great joy. That you have done the impossible work that we could not merit on our own to defeat our enemies of Satan, sin, and death. Father, you have made us new citizens in your kingdom. Help us to see all of the rights and privileges that come with that as good news of great joy. And Father, as your ambassadors, I pray that you would help us take seriously the responsibilities and obligations that we have as your citizens and ambassadors to proclaim and abstain and live good lives among the Gentiles. 
Father, the battle lines are drawn within our souls. And we long for the day that Jesus will return and free us from all of our enemies of Satan, sin, Satan, the world, and the flesh. And in this time, I pray, Lord, that you would help to equip us to battle against these impulses. Battle so that we would glorify your name, so that we would be able to share with the world that your kingdom is a better kingdom. And so that we might live true, truly satisfied lives Father, as people think about the temptations that are on their heart, I pray that you would renew our interest in renouncing and turning from that lifestyle. Maybe as we think about the times that we've tried and failed in the past and tried and failed in the past and tried and failed and eventually gave up fighting that war, I pray, Lord, that you would declare war for us again. That you would lift our head, steady our spines to be able to wage war in a new way. Father, help us here over the next seven weeks. We need your spirit to do what only your spirit can do. So we plead for it in Jesus' name. Amen.